I, I spoke about the importance of establishing and protecting a devotional life. I didn't get to finish the message, so today I'm going to try to. And you, re- you might remember that I began by citing John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, it's a great book. Um, and uh, he, there he argues that a fundamental missing piece in the modern American church is the failure to follow Christ in his rejection of slavery to hurry and man-centered pressures and man-centered demands. And instead, to imitate Jesus' example of giving generous times of solitude and rest to the Lord. And, and Comer, therefore, advocates strongly, among other things, for the establishment and protection of a robust devotional life. And a meaningful time of daily prayer and scripture reflection. Now, neither Comer nor the Bible ever give us a specific formula for a devotional life. No specific time duration is commanded, and that's on purpose. It means that we need to be slow to advise someone specifically about how they are or are not spending time with God, and it means that we especially need to refrain from judging one another about matters like this. Uh, Because to his own master he stands or falls, Paul says. Who are you to judge another one's servant before his own master he stands and falls? And he will stand, for God is able to make him stand. But I tried to explain last time that while there's no precise roadmap, Scripture calls us in many ways to be fervent in prayer. However it might look for us individually, fervency is the call. And to be to be holding our grip tightly on God's word, however that looks for us in our circumstances, we are all called to hold firmly to the truth of Christ. And we see it all over the Bible, this call, for instance, to listen to God and his word is ubiquitous. It's everywhere in scripture. In Hebrews 2, we're called to pay very close attention as we listened to last week about the message of Christ, lest we drift away from it. In Psalm 1, we're called by example of the psalmist to meditate on God's truth day and night. In Matthew 4, we're told that we need God's word as much as we need food. Do we need food every day? We do. Typically, we do. And, and so we need God's word every day. Throughout all the epistles, we're told to firmly hold on to the truth of the gospel lest we show ourselves to be counterfeit. For the believer, prioritizing An ongoing reflection on Christ in his word is not an option, whatever it might look like personally for you and I. But the same goes for prayer, that is, talking to God, speaking to him. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we're called to pray without ceasing. And while that doesn't mean we spend our entire day talking to God and not talking to people or doing our job or caring for our children, Paul is calling us to have a a, day a constant posture of a heart that's looking towards God throughout the day, moment by moment, asking him for help, asking him to be glorified, asking him to give us encouragement and hope when we need it. And similarly, similarly, we read in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This means we're not just to pray, 
But we watch. We, we actually remember what we're praying for. And we watch for God to respond to those prayers. Like David said in Psalm 5, every day I lay my request before you. Early in the morning, he said, I lay my request before you. And then I wait in expectation. He remembered what he prayed for. He watched for it to grow and bear fruit. In Psalm 62, we're commanded. I love this verse in Psalm 62, 8 so much. This verse has been so encouraging to me. We're not just called, this is beautiful, listen, we're commanded to express our trust in God in the most intimate way. He says, trust him at all times, all times, O people, pour out your hearts to him. Those aren't disconnected ideas. We trust God in Psalm 62 by pouring out our hearts to him. You don't pour out your hearts to someone that you fear so much you can't talk to or you don't think can help you or you don't think cares And so David says, pour out your hearts to God. That's how you trust him. That's prayer. Sharing with him the honest condition of our longings and our fears and our sorrows. 1 Peter 5 says to bring our burdens to God because he cares for you. And he says that's humility. If you look at the context, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Don't hold it in and just live off anxiety. But recognize that God is the only one who can help you, really, and he will. Philippians 4, Paul tells us not to be anxious about anything, anything. Oh my gosh, I'm anxious right now in this season of my life. I'm anxious every day. Talk to Mike and Kim and my wife in the last 24 hours about my anxiety. And God's just saying, bring it to me. Bring it to me. Cries for help, petitions and prayers. And Paul says, do it with thanksgiving. Meaning, believe that he hears you. And he knows and he cares. In Matthew 7, by commandment, and by Psalm 5, by example, we're called to have meaningful times of prayer with God at the beginning of every day. It's, it's clear in the Lord's Prayer. It's clear in Psalm 5 that, that we're called to engage with God at the start of our day in meaningful ways. And all through Jesus' life and in the lives of godly men and women throughout history, we see this example of prioritizing time with God as a means to experience the heart, and the blessing of God. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. And follow me here because it might sound superficial, but just listen. He says, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Isn't that great? I mean, even just as a fan of literature. (laughs) A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Now listen, if you know about Charles Spurgeon's life, you know that he was the most emotionally troubled believers in Christian history that we know, we, know, we know about. His bouts with severe depression are legendary. Spurgeon would take like three months in the south of France from his church to recover from horrible, d- just dead depression. He was a complete mess emotionally. <laughs> but I don't think he's talking about his emotional health here. I think he's talking about his spiritual health. You know, Charles Spurgeon died at 59. He probably died of a broken heart due to slanderous attacks on his character. By the way, if you don't know about Spurgeon, he's the most widely published Christian in history outside of the Gospels, outside of Paul. No one's been published, written, no one has more writings out there than Charles Spurgeon. But, but he died uh, in, at 59 years old. He probably died of, of slanderous attacks on his, on his character. But what he never did do was die spiritually by abandoning Christ. We never see that apostasy, that drifting, that moral uh, shipwreck in Spurgeon's life, either in his faith or in his heart. 
So while his circumstances and his emotions were, were often falling apart, his spiritual life with Jesus never fell apart. It, Jesus sustained him to the end, and he would attribute much of that to how God sustained him through prayer, through pleading, through crying out, and through dependence on the truth of the gospel and God's grace again and again. Martin Luther, another famous Christian, he famously said that if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. In fact, he said, I have so much business that I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. Isn't that a provoking way to look at your to-do list? That you have so much to do You have so much to do, so much responsibility that you have to set it all aside so you can pray. Like, that's a really freeing way to live. And I'm not telling you everybody has to spend two hours or three hours in prayer at the start of each day or else you're not a Christian. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But you hear in the words of these men of God that that they knew that the battle was fought on their knees and in the prayer closet with their scriptures open clinging to God's promises. We saw that a few weeks ago. How did Jesus begin his whole ministry? Not with ministry. He went to the desert for 40 days, waited on the Lord, fought spiritually with Satan and conquered him before he fought with the hardness of men's hearts and the Pharisees. In the word and in the lives of God's people, we see a picture of God as a priority above all other priorities. We see a picture of the people of God called to listen to him and talk to him all the time, throughout their days, throughout their moments. As if God, it's almost as if God was really supposed to be our most important relationship. And, and if that were true, that it really would look like something. Like, I know the answer is yes, but here's a rhetorical question. Do you want to experience God? You want to experience God in your heart. I know you do. I do. And we see in the Psalms, if we look, if you spend any careful time in the Psalms, you cannot help but see that David's life was full of experiences with God that filled his heart. You will find him saying things like this, Psalm 119. My soul is crushed with longing for your ordinances, your commandments at all times. Your testimonies, it's God's word, are are my delight. They are my advisors. Behold, he's saying to God, look, I long for your precepts. It's again, God's laws, God's word. Revive me through your righteousness. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. He says, my soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word. I say, when will you comfort me? How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I rise up before the dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches so that I may meditate on your word. 
If you're a non-charismatic Presbyterian Baptist, you can't help but see a tremendous emotional experience in David's walk with God, right? And if you're a, a tried and true Pentecostal charismatic, you can't help but see that David's hope was in God's word, God's truth. Psalm 63, he says, My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. And then listen to what he says. He says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. David experienced God. He said that God's love that he experienced was better than anything in life. Psalm 84, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. God was not an abstract truth to David. God was not mere facts about deity or a confessional statement. God was a person. God was a person that David experienced as truly as you and I experience our best friends. And we all want this. And why wouldn't we? David says in Psalm 16, the truth of his experience with God was this. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your pleasures are in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, the closer he got with God, the, the more joy he felt and experienced, the more pleasure he felt and experienced in his life. How did he come to this experience? Look at the psalm itself, same psalm. He says in that psalm, I have set the Lord continually before me. Therefore, because I have set the Lord continually before me, because my focus is on him throughout my day, therefore, my heart rejoices. David set the Lord continually before him. He made it a point to set his mind and his heart on the Lord. And the Holy Spirit responded by filling David's heart with a sense of God's heart and nearness. Sometimes the reason that we don't experience God as we like are just unavoidable. I mean, oftentimes, the reasons we don't experience God are unavoidable. Number one, we're not in heaven. Like, we're not done. We have indwelling sin in our hearts. We have Satan who opposes us. We have, we have a world that's constantly trying to seduce us or distract us. So in one sense, it's going to be impossible on this side of heaven to ever experience God the way that we want to experience him. It doesn't mean we can't, as David says, have experiences with God that are wonderful. But, but it'll never be as it will be when we see him face to face. There are other reasons that are more pronounced in some of us. There are mental health issues, depression, bipolar. Um, those are real things in our body that prohibit us from experiencing the moods that we wish we want to and that we will in his kingdom, the joy and the peace that we want to. There are absolutely true dark nights of the soul where God has allowed or ordained that in his wisdom, we will not feel a sense of him. And sometimes he is teaching us And he did this with me for years and still has to do it. Teaching us not to live on feelings, but on the truth of his word. And to give us that difficult trial that causes us to go to his truth because our feelings are so messed up and they're so debilitating. And these seasons can last for long periods. 
and our life circumstances can, can affect this as well. Difficult situations with sick folks and loved ones and difficult marriages. So whether it's the circumstances or the dark night of the soul, these things can last a long time. And for some of us, even years. And wherever that is, we will all have seasons like this. Single parents, working moms, moms with littles. There, there's so much need. There's so much weariness that we just cannot get the generous space we want. And God knows that. And he knows how to be gentle. And part of working through those seasons is, is seeing the gentleness of God and the patience of God and the compassion of God and the mercy of God for our sin, for our circumstance when it's not sin and keeping that close. But, but, however, and this is an admixture in all of us, sometimes the answer is, is simpler. Sometimes the answer is simpler. Th- this week I was taking a walk in the neighborhood and I saw an unusual sight that I can't recall. I, I don't remember ever seeing this before. Um, and Brando, can we put it up? This is what I saw a few, few blocks away. There was a tree, this tree. It was, it was rich on, on one side. You guys can see on the right side. It was rich all the way to the top. And the branches of the tree behind it make it look richer than it was on the left side. Because on the, on the left side, it was lifeless. One side looked like early June, the other side looked like December, and it's an evergreen, so, you know, it's always going to look, it's supposed to always look green. But it was the weirdest thing, and I didn't know if I'd ever seen it before. Like, was there a poison issue? Was there dangerous fertilizer? Was there, like, a weird water table thingy going on below, flushing toxins on one side? And then it occurred to me that maybe it was actually pretty simple. All the trees were on an angled hill, you can kind of see it slopes up and it keeps sloping up. And on one side of these particular hills, um, there were much bigger trees. And because of that, one side was always in the shade. It was always in the dark. And the other one, because of where it was placed, was often getting tons and tons of sun. And so uh, once I had this thesis, I checked a few yards up the street and I found another tree. As you guys can kind of see, it's harder because there's another tree behind it. But the same thing's going on the right side. That tree looks all flush and beautiful. On the, right, on the left side, it's like, it's nothing there. I, I can't believe I never saw that before. Maybe it was just the, the reality of my neighborhood. But then I, I looked it up. You know, I, I went and found it. It's just this simple. It's the sun. One side is facing the sun and getting all the nourishment that it needs. And the other side is never facing the sun, and never getting the nourishment that it needs. Same tree, one side was rich and full on one side, the other side was bare and lifeless. The experience of the two sides of these branches couldn't have looked different. But it was all just about what direction that they spent their time, so to speak, facing. No one should or would probably, if they're thinking, expect to have a healthy marriage without spending intentional, devoted time with their spouse. No one expects to experience the joy of deep friendship without investing time and common interest together with your friend. So why would we expect to have a healthy friendship with God whose only fitting position in our lives by his decree, by his worth, is first place 
if we're constantly giving him second, third, fourth, fifth place behind everything else. And we've talked about this before, but including good things like our children, our relationships, our hoped-for spouses, our spouses, our work, even our ministry, these things are not to become our priority, our first-place priority. Well, maybe I should put it this way. We're always to be fighting (laughs) to keep these things from occupying the first place in our heart. I want to be careful. There's no perfect on this side of heaven. But David prayed in Psalm 86, Unite my heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because his heart was divided all the time. He gets up in the morning. He says, Lord, unite my heart. I can tell I care about this. I care about this more than you. I, I'm starting to care about this more than you. This is weighing me down. He just says, Lord, please bring it all together under you. Unite my heart to fear your name. He knew how susceptible he was to give the primary place of his heart to everyone and everything else but God. It was a constant battle for him. And so the Holy Spirit gave us that prayer to pray as well. He knows we need help with this. Of course, if God isn't honored when we put, when we don't fight, putting noble and good things even in front of him, he, he won't be honored when we put mind-numbing social media and social networks in front of him either. Some of us entertain our lives away. We, we barely know it. Do you see this thing? Jesse um, traded a phone with me last week. I got a cover for it. I, I said to my kids, I don't think they know what I mean, but I got this cover online. It looks like I'm in the mafia now. It's like gold and fake leather. But, <laughs> but this, this beautiful attention-drawing product and, and the companies that fill it with social media platforms and games and news and Snapchat and TikTok, this is intentionally configured to addict you. It's not debatable. This isn't a Christian soliloquy. You can read about it in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago. You can see it on Netflix and documentaries. This has been intentionally designed. It's no secret that tech and media companies make their money by locking you into a pleasure-reward system catalyzed via a physiological response, a God-given pleasure-releasing chemical in your body called dopamine, And this product is designed to use your own body and all its media accompaniments and accoutrements to use your own body to addict you to it. And it is, for many, many, many millions of people, it is working really well. (laughs) Many people are running on dopamine a lot more than the Holy Spirit. The average person, according to the studies I looked up, touches their cell phone 2,000 times a day. The average American spends 5.4 hours on their phone. And you know, you'll find different studies that say different things. So I'm giving you a slice of a few studies I've looked at. But these were pretty in the wheelhouse numbers. 5.4 hours a day on, on their phone when you put it all together for the average American. And some studies suggest that 6 to 24 year olds, the younger folks coming up on the end who've never not known these products in their conscious experience, spend an average of 10 hours per day on their phone and on social media. And 
And, and if we're in that place, we have to say that, that there's no way we can say we're too busy for God. There's just no way we can say it. If we give hours, multiple hours to a screen, whether on phones or computers or flat screens, and, and yet we, we can't give 30 minutes to God, to, to sitting before him in his word, to crying out for our hearts and for the hearts of our church and for the lost around us who need him. And of course, the question needs to be asked, why would we allow ourselves to become addicted to these devices and and numb our minds with useless trivia and gossip disguised as news and soul-killing images that devour us as we devour them? Because we know that we're fallen and we're susceptible and we, we need to cry with David. Unite my heart to fear your name. Heal me. In Ephesians five fifteen through 17, Paul commands us, be very careful how you live. He's saying, don't sleep through the day. Don't drift, as we talked about last week, but be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will is not that we spend hours on TikTok and drudge or worse and then throw him a 60-second bone of a prayer every once in a while. For many, for many American Christians, we're not too busy for God. We're just in a committed relationship with dopamine and God is a jealous third wheel. So, Some of you may need to, I need to be on my guard. Some of you guys are doing a great job. So I'm not speaking to everybody in this room, but but please, I just appeal to you like this is a spiritual issue, this device and what it brings us. Because God is a God of grace, but he's not a cheap date. If we will not invest the time and attention that he desires from us, that we could give him and that he knows I'm not talking about what we can't give him. But if we're not giving to him the time and attention that we could give him, I don't think that we're going to have what we desire from him. So I want to challenge you. Honor God with your time and your attention, and he will honor you. Make it a priority of your life every day to take meaningful time to lift the branches of your soul to him in prayer and to turn the leaves of your mind towards his word And he will bless you for it. He will bless you for it. You may not always feel it, but he will. He never doesn't see that kind of longing and that kind of attempt to draw near to him. He promises, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. He promises, those who honor me, I honor I've been thinking recently how, um, you know, a life is made up of many, many years 
but each one of those years is made up of days, and each one of those days is made up of hours. Your day is dependent on what you do with those hours. Your years are dependent on what you do with those days. And your life that you bring before God when you stand before him is dependent on what you've done with those years. So, you know, little idea here. If you take one of those hours or a good part of it and you give it to the Lord in a fundamentally, well, how do I put it? If you give it to the Lord to come before him, cry out before him, spend time with him. If you give him an hour a day or, or something, you know, at 30, whatever you do to give him a, a quality chunk that you can of that day, whatever it might look like for you, but you take those hours you have and say, Lord, I'm going to give you this chunk of this day. That's going to change your day. It is. Your day is going to be different because you came before him and gave him meaningful time and attention and drew near to him. It's going to change your day. That day is going to change. If you put those days together, you do that every day, it's going to change your year. You put those years together and you stay with that. It's going to change your life. You want to live a meaningful life. You want to stand before God and say, Lord, my, the grace you gave me was not in vain. Well, it, it's a day thing. It's a daily thing. You don't change your life by changing your life. You change your life by changing your days. And you change your days by changing some of those hours, some of those minutes that you take each day. And you give them to the Lord. And again, I want to be really careful. I don't have a prescription for you these many hours. But I can tell you by everything we've read in his word and my own experience that I believe your life will change if you give him time, if you give him attention and you give him focus. And some of you already experienced that. If you go to our webpage, th- there's a tab on our homepage called 10 Ideas. And in that tab, if you click on it, there's an article with a list of ways and principles that I've found from God's word and from godly men and women in history and in my own experience to establish and protect your devotional life. And I, I, I'm glad that that's there. I think it was Pam's idea to put it on the homepage. But I've, I've never asked her to take it off because since I came to Christ in 1992, nothing, nothing has affected my life more than spending time with him and trying to do that on a regular basis. I mean, if, you, if we go back to that picture of the tree, can you put that picture back up of the first tree? Like that was the first four years of my Christian experience. And on the right side, that's been more what the last few decades of my Christian experience, relative to me. The the first four years of my Christian experience after I was saved were a barren desert roller coaster of emotional calamity. And I've always struggled (laughs) emotionally. I'm not a, um, you know, those of you who know me, you know what I'm talking about. But really, it's been very different. <laughs> if you knew me before, you would be like, oh, wow, it has been different. It's been really different um, because of functionally speaking, pleading with God in prayer and going to him in, in times in his word and trying to make that consistent, which I struggle with. I don't do it perfectly. But nothing has affected my life more 
after being saved than when I try to spend time with him and when I try to do that on a regular basis. It, it has changed my life. And when I don't do it, I struggle for it. What a shock. We're made to drink water. And when we spend weeks in the desert where there's no water, we start to go in bad places, you know? So again, I can't tell you exactly what this needs to look like for you. And, and God's word will not allow me to prescribe a specific practice when he's intentionally left it out so that you would have the freedom to walk this out with him according to your own life situation. But again, as I point out in the paper, there are principles. We've talked about some. There are sensible wisdom we can follow from others. It's just a few that I can share with you as we close here. We've already pointed out the command in the word to set our hearts on him each day early in meaningful prayer. And that such a time is, however long it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be meaningful. So you, you want to give him enough time that it's meaningful to you and meaningful in your own processing. And you want to try to do that before the day rushes upon you, if you can. That's the example of scripture. That's implicit in the Lord's Prayer. It's implicit in Psalm 5. And in, in the paper, I share wisdom about the usefulness of journaling. This is a, an option. This is not a commandment in scripture. But, but I have found that writing can help me focus when my ADHD mind is a jumble. And, and it gives me the opportunity to just write just raw, honest truth to God. Like, Lord, I don't feel you. I don't see you. I don't know if I even believe in you right now. I don't even know if I'm saved today. But just writing that out and just saying the hardest things, I just find he meets me in that place so often. By the end of my time, I, I wouldn't write what I wrote at the beginning, or if I would, I just feel better for having expressed it to him. And writing has really helped me. Um, I, I share the, the, the wisdom that was given to me through, I think, a Charles Stanley book about recording your prayers. This gets back to what David said. I watch, I wait in expectation after I pray. Like writing down your prayers and then revisiting them a week or so later, when you, can, you might find out when you write down your prayers and, and revisit them a week later that actually God has been paying much more attention to your prayers than you have. Prayers that you've forgotten about, you'll go back and you'll look over the week, you'll be like, oh, he didn't forget. He didn't forget. And then you get to praise him and thank him and you get to realize that he's been trying to show you that he is real and he's really in your life and the prayers you've forgotten, he didn't. Uh, in, in the paper, I also encourage a, a basic plan. Like often we fail just because we don't have any plan. A simple plan. Don't have to be complicated. But at the same time we set aside, the same place we try to set aside, a basic reading plan. One chapter of Psalms, and then journaling. One chapter of Psalms and a chapter of New Testament, and then you know journaling. Oftentimes, it, it, in this regard, it's just important to have a basic plan of scripture and prayer than it is to like have any specific plan. Just come up with something, and I, I'll help you if you want to ask me for advice on it. And there's some beautiful wisdom in the paper, which I want to commend you again from George Mueller, an 18th century Englishman, a, a builder of orphanages, a man of incredible faith who saw incredible miracles. His life, is, his life story is well worth reading. But his life with God after becoming Christian, it was revolutionized by this discovery he made that the first and greatest duty, he said, of each day for him was not ministry for the Lord. The first and greatest duty for him, he said, was not working for the Lord. But his life was changed by this truth that he realized that the first and greatest duty 
that he had as a believer in the Lord was to make his soul happy in God, was to be with God and spend time with God and put his trust in God until he found joy and happiness in God before he tried to do anything for God. He said that was his goal. And he learned to focus his heart and mind by, by praying the scriptures that he read. It helped him fight distraction and give devotion to his intake. He look at Matthew 5, and he wouldn't just read Matthew 5. He would, he would find things in Matthew 5, and as he's reading it, he's praying. You know, the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. Oh, Lord, help me to be merciful, because I want to receive mercy. And it began to help him, because even in the 1800s, you could fall asleep at the wheel, you know, of, of your prayer time. So, and finally, um, I, I want to close with this. I want to ask you, after everything I just said, I want to put one more warning flag up there. This is so important. I, I want to ask you to recognize the tension that we spoke of last time. This is kind of a U-turn here, but our devotional life, as important as it is, and it is important, it's not our Savior. It's not our Savior. And, and losing hold, ironically, losing hold of that truth that our quiet time, our devotional life, is not our Savior can make quiet times and devotionals legalistic drudgery that actually we would be better not doing all together than if we make our spiritual practices our God. So, Jesus saves. Devotionals, prayer, our word, they give us a place to experience the salvation he's given us. But they don't save us. We can't do him without his help and his power. And I believe he'd rather have 15 years of a mustard seed of faith in him and 60-second prayer than he would 15 years of two hours every day without faith, without trusting and depending on him and his work on the cross for us. So there's a tension there. Does that make sense? So as we close this morning, let's ask God to search our hearts and show us where we might be giving him short shrift on our time and attention. Let's affirm his forgiveness for this wherever we feel like it's going on. If you don't feel that it's going on right now, then thank him for the power and the blessing of a, of a rich life with him devotionally. And that's okay. Some of you guys, I believe absolutely, that's all you can do this morning is say, God, I'm doing okay here and I just want to thank you. <laughs> that's okay. But, it, but if you feel a conviction that you're not giving him time, bring that to him. Affirm his forgiveness and, and affirm that you want to give him. Lord, help me in this. Unite my heart to fear your name. I want to give you whatever you deserve. Help me see what it looks like. And then in a few moments of prayer and quiet, we'll, we'll acknowledge that last part, that Jesus our Savior will take communion together. So let's just spend a few moments in prayer.